Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. In Afghanistan, we had testimony over and over that the government would last six months or a year beyond the departure of U.S. troops. It lasted minus two weeks. Uh, is this something that you're focused upon? Uh, Senator, I am focused on it. I really appreciate uh, this dialogue because I think there's an important nuance that we have to discuss. One is one is the will to fight and the other is the capacity to fight. So in, in, in closed briefings, we talked about this capacity, uh, this capacity to fight. And given the correlation of forces that the Russians had and what the Ukrainians had, it was, it was the thought of, of senior analysts that it wasn't going to go very well uh, for a variety of factors. But there was never an intelligence community assessment that said the Ukrainians lacked the will to fight. Uh, those assessments talked about their capacity. Yeah, but there wasn't to an assessment fight. that they did either. The assessment was Ukraine would be overrun in a matter of weeks. That was grossly wrong. That was Senator Angus King of Maine sharply questioning Lieutenant General Scott Barrier, head of the Defense Intelligence Agency, about the faulty predictions that Afghanistan could hold out for months against the Taliban as U.S. forces pulled out in 2021, and conversely, some 15 months later, that the Russian army would take Kiev in three days. Both intelligence estimates turned out to be grossly wrong. Later in the show, I'll be talking with Gail Helt, a former CIA intelligence analyst, about how good we are at estimating our adversary's strengths and intentions. Gene? Though much of the world's focus has been on the war in Ukraine, other threats are lurking, amongst them North Korea. It is pretty much a black hole where intelligence is concerned, largely walled off from the rest of the world. But we spoke with Matthew Kronig, Deputy Director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and a Professor of Government and Foreign Service at Georgetown University. Kronig specializes in studying the nuclear programs of America's adversaries, including North Korea. We asked him about North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's recent rash of missile launches and reports that he may be preparing for an underground nuclear test, the first since 2017. It has dozens of nuclear weapons now, missiles capable of reaching U.S. allies and uh, partners and, and bases in Asia has the ability to miniaturize a nuclear weapon, has the ability to deliver a nuclear weapon to the continental United States. Uh, so the program continues to expand in size and sophistication. And with these um, series of tests, including this reported underground nuclear test, I think North Korea is uh, trying to, to make its uh, forces more sophisticated. Uh, so uh, likely uh, working on a, a genuine two-stage um, thermonuclear weapon, uh, and um, other uh, other advancements in uh, terms of miniaturization, yield, uh, efficiency. And they have restarted their facility where they produce fissile material, correct? Yeah, so now it looks like there are uh, you know, two major pathways to make fuel for nuclear weapons, uranium enrichment, plutonium reprocessing, and it looks like North Korea is working on both uh, paths, um, uh, so that uh, that's concerning. There have been reports that North Korea is considering deploying tactical nukes to the border with South Korea. What can you tell me? 
Well, I think it would make um, a lot of sense uh, for strategy for North Korea. You know, one of the things, uh, uh, rules of nuclear strategy is that countries that are in a conventionally inferior position often rely on nuclear weapons to offset the conventional superiority of their rivals. So it's essentially what the United States did vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Uh, now that in Europe, the shoe's on the other foot. Russia, as we're seeing in Ukraine, is relying on early nuclear threats to offset NATO's conventional um, superiority. Uh, Pakistan uh, does this with regard to India, threatens early tactical nuclear use to a conventionally superior uh, Indian force. And so I've uh, actually speculated for years that um, you know North Korea might move in this direction, given that it faces a conventionally superior uh, U.S. and South Korean uh, military across the border, uh, that it should rely on early nuclear threats. But you know the strategic weapons uh, that it has been focused on till now uh, doesn't really make uh, sense for that. What, what would make more sense are more you know, forward deployed, lower yield, non-battlefield nuclear weapons that they could threaten to use against U.S. and South Korean forces on the battlefield. So there have been reports that they're moving in that direction. And um, uh, unfortunately, I think it does make sense given their situation. What do you think is the ultimate goal? Is this deterrence? Is it saber rattling? Uh, is it intimidation? Is it a play for attention? Looking not just at that deployment, but at the larger picture of the nuclear tests, the increase in missile launches, and this possible deployment of tactical nukes. Yeah, so let me uh, say a couple of things. You know, I remember 10 or 15 years ago, people saying, who cares if North Korea has three or four nuclear weapons? And I would argue, well, what makes you think they're going to stop at three or four? I think they want uh, a nuclear arsenal, maybe like Pakistan's, you know, 100 or, or more nuclear weapons, diverse sets of delivery vehicles. And I think that's what we're seeing now, that they don't want to have this fledgling arsenal. They do want to be a kind of a, a normal nuclear power with a, a substantial arsenal. Uh, and what is the political goal? Uh, there's also been a long-running debate with some people saying it's only about deterrence. Uh, Kim Jong-un is worried about regime survival. This is to, to deter uh, rivals. Um, uh, but others saying, no, there's also offensive goal here that if they have this kind of perfect nuclear shield, it does give them a freer hand to engage in uh, aggression, um, maybe even um, you know, hopes of reunification of the Korean Peninsula under Kim Jong-un's uh, leadership. And so I, I think it's probably both, uh, certainly deterrence, but I think we've seen that uh, Kim Jong-un does have more um, uh, expansive um, ambitions, you know, his, and uh, you know, his grandfather went to war to try to unify the peninsula. His, his father um, you know, uh, talked about it. So I think he realizes it's going to be hard anytime soon, but I think he does have a long-term ambition of unifying the peninsula under North Korean leadership. And what can the rest of the world do about this? We've tried sanctions. Obviously, those haven't worked. Uh, we've tried to improve relations. That didn't work. What do we do? Well, I often tell my students at Georgetown that, you know, people looking from the outside think, well, you know, what, why do we keep choosing these bad policy options? Why aren't we choosing the good ones? Uh, but with a hard policy problem like North Korea, we only have bad options. And so I think sometimes the art is, is choosing the least bad option. I mean, in North Korea, I think essentially we have to try all the bad options at, at once. So I think continuing the sanctions and the pressure and, and increasing the sanctions and pressure, which I think we can do in some ways, uh, would make sense. Um, 
Uh, second, I, I think that we should try negotiations. It's it's going to be hard, but I think um, there's no reason not to try. Uh, and then third and finally, um, I think we do need to uh, put in place a serious deterrence and containment regime. Uh, even though our goal is to get rid of North Korean nuclear weapons, the fact is that they have them. And so we need to have a serious strategy to uh, deter and, if necessary, respond to North Korean use. And what would that look like? Uh, the deterrence and containment regime? Well, I think we're doing um, a lot already, but um, you know, one thing we could do, I think, is strengthen homeland uh, missile defense. So for a long time, U.S. missile defense policy uh, has said that we're, we're not building a missile defense to deal with China and Russia. It's to deal with rogue states like North Korea and Iran. And so we've promised that we're going to keep pace with North Korea's advancements. Um, but as North Korea expands its arsenal, there's a real uh, question about whether we're doing that. Um, and uh, the Biden administration hasn't hasn't published its missile defense review yet. But the rumor is that they're going to abandon uh, North Korea as the pacing threat, which I think would be a mistake. I think we should uh, keep up with the developments in North Korea's uh, nuclear program. Um, second, I think, would be both for the United States and for our regional allies to have uh, conventional uh, strike options to um, hold at risk uh, some of North Korea's strategic forces. Um, and um, not that the United States would want to strike first necessarily, but if Kim Jong-un uses a nuclear weapon or two or three, you know, I don't think a U.S. president is going to sit around and, and wait much longer. I think he is going to say, what are my options to make this stop? Can we hold at risk their uh, forces? And, and I'm not confident that we can now. So I think some more uh, strike options. Like? Well, so for example, um, conventional hypersonic missiles that you know, could hold at risk targets in North Korea quickly without you know, the risk of nuclear radiation and fallout. You know, right now we don't really have a conventional global strike option, but you know, conventionally armed hypersonics, I think would be one way to do that. We don't have a hypersonic either. Well, we're, um, we're testing. So I think, you know, uh, continuing the testing, continuing to develop this capability and, and field it, uh, making that a priority would be important. So we're talking as if we really have visibility into what's happening in North Korea. Do we, or is our intelligence capability really limited? Well, great question for a podcast called Spy Talk. Uh, and so, yeah, that is a challenge. You know, e even with um, Iran, uh, there are inspectors um, on the ground. There, there are monitor mon monitoring, and Iran's been. And there are Israelis on the ground, too. But. <laughs> yeah, so we've had good windows. That's right. We've had a good window into Iran's program. With North Korea, we really haven't. You know, there haven't been inspectors on the ground um, in a long time. Uh, we don't, unlike Russia and China, we don't have an embassy there, so we can't, um, you know, gather intelligence um, that way. So, so our, our window into North Korea is limited. And so when it goes, going back to what I was saying about a deterrence and containment regime, if we wanted to hold at risk targets in North Korea, I, I don't know that we even know where are all the facilities, um, uh, can we um, hold them at risk? So I think making this much more of an intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance uh, priority is, is also important. Can satellites and signals intelligence, can that make up for the lack of human intelligence inside North Korea? It's very um, helpful, um, but I, I think it can't, can't make up for uh, human intelligence. And so... Um, so we're operating blind to a certain degree. At least with one eye closed. Is there any way to improve that? 
that you see? Well, well, one of the ways we have been able to get insight into what's going on in North Korea is through defectors. Uh, and um, uh, so I think uh, continuing to um, facilitate that would be helpful. You know, North Korea has a big problem with its diplomats. Uh, they get stationed um, overseas and, uh, you know, many of them uh, walk off the job and seek asylum. And I, I don't blame them. So, uh, you know, in, in uh, making sure that we're talking to those people and, and downloading all the information we can get, I think, is also uh, helpful. And then there are also countries um, that do have, um, uh, you know, better relations with North Korea than we do. And so going secondhand. Uh, through through those countries. Let me ask you a couple of non-nuclear questions about North Korea and, and, and get a sense of, of uh, how things may be developing there. Um, they have demonstrated several times their uh, very strong capabilities in cyber. Um, is this an area where you can expect them to become even a more serious actor and more of a problem? Well, they've, they've been a problem for some time, as um, as you point out. Uh, but yeah, they continue to make this a priority, and um, I, I think they will be a, a cyber um, a cyber threat. Um, and then it's the um, you know what I really worry about when it comes to cyber is is um, not not the cyber attack on their own, but the cyber in combination with um, other things. So uh, yet like when they you know hacked into. Sony Pictures or whatever it was, that was um, a problem. But, um, you know, if there's a, a major uh, conflict and, and they have the ability to use uh, cyber to disable um, U.S. communications or, or satellites or other things, I, I think that's where, as kind of a force multiplier, that's where it gets really dangerous. And in the meantime, they're using cyber theft to finance a lot of their military development, right? That's right. Uh, counterfeiting, uh, cyber theft. Um, uh, yeah, they're a big... Uh, big challenge for for many reasons uh, hu human rights abuses of course is is another uh, big one uh, there was the case of otto warmbier a, a few years ago the student from the university of virginia who was um, uh, captured imprisoned uh, tortured returned um, to the united states only to die um, a few days later and you know, uh, you know some of the people focusing on this think that some of the human rights abuses the conditions at labor camps inside north korea you know, may, may be as bad as anything we witnessed during the 20th century in Stalin's Russia or Mao's uh, China. Do we have any visibility on whether there is political instability there, perhaps as a result of these human rights abuses? It's a good question. You know, we, we've been predicting that the North Korean regime would collapse since the 1990s and, and hasn't happened yet. So it, it does seem like it's been much more stable than we've um, predicted. You know, one uh, development that's interesting with Kim Jong-un is that he has allowed more uh, markets uh, inside North Korea, uh, allowing some privatization. So it makes sense from an economic perspective. Often, though, dictators don't like to do that because they like control. They'd rather have a poor society they can control than one that's flourishing economically. So, that, so that's um, interesting. North Korea, uh, there are some changes uh, for that reason. And so could that be... Um, uh, something that would that would destabilize Kim Jong Un if there become independent sources of wealth uh, apart from uh, being being loyal to him. What impact do you believe COVID might have had on North Korea or is having? I, I think it's likely um, having a devastating impact. It's it's uh, there. Um, you know, their health uh, system isn't nearly what ours is in the West. Uh, vaccine um, availability is uh, slim to to non-existent. 
so I, I think it's spreading uh, uh, and, and likely um, killing um, a lot of people. And potentially making the economic problem and the hunger problem even worse? I think that's um, probably uh, probably the case, and I'm also straining uh, straining the state and straining state resources. Um, but you know, Kim Jong Un has consistently faced this uh, question of priorities, and um, uh, you know, does he spend on his military and on the regime or uh, on the society? And uh, you know, his his preferences are pretty clear. So you know, some people have thought maybe this is going to slow down you know, the development of the nuclear and missile program. But uh, my, my fear is probably not by much. I think he's probably continuing to make that a priority, uh, making sure the nuclear and the missile program is getting the resources it needs and um, society's suffering as a result. How big a threat is North Korea to the U.S.? Well, I think it's a, a big threat. Um, so one, um, uh, you know, there's the threat of further proliferation. I, I don't think North Korea's nuclear weapons are going to stop with North Korea. Uh, as you mentioned uh, earlier or asked about earlier, there's the risk that it could transfer its nuclear weapons to other countries. Uh, there's the risk that U.S. allies in the region, Japan and South Korea, uh, may decide that they can no longer rely on the U.S. nuclear umbrella. They need to develop their own nuclear weapons in response. Um, if those things happen, then there's the risk to the global non-proliferation regime. So that's the first thing I worry about. Um, the second thing I worry about is that I think that if North Korea does feel like it has this nuclear shield that it can use to deter South Korean and U.S. attacks, that it could become more aggressive uh, in the region, uh, more sinking of South Korean warships, um, uh, artillery attacks on South Korean islands, maybe even a larger attack at some point. Um, and then third and finally, I think there is a risk of nuclear war, even against the U.S. homeland. And I don't want to exaggerate this. I don't think Kim Jong-un is crazy. I don't think he wants to fight a nuclear war with the United States. But um, realistically, there probably will be future nuclear crises between North Korea and the United States. Uh, and in a crisis like that, there is the risk of things spinning out of control. Uh, President Kennedy said the risk of nuclear war during the Cuban Missile Crisis was somewhere between one-third and one-half. Um, I don't think we thought Kennedy was crazy, but he was willing to basically flip a coin over a nuclear war uh, with the Soviet Union. You know, so what's the risk of nuclear war that Kim Jong-un is willing to run? Um, I, I don't know the answer, but I'm pretty sure it's greater than zero. And um, given that he has the ability to hold the U.S. homeland at risk uh, with these weapons, there is the risk that at some point a crisis with North Korea could result in a nuclear attack on Washington, New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. So um, it's not China or Russia, but it is um, a serious threat to the U.S. homeland. You said you don't think Kim Jong-un is crazy. How would you describe him? Well, he, he certainly wants us to think he's crazy. You know, he, over every minor provocation, he threatens to turn Asia into a sea of fire. But I actually think this is a cultivated um, strategy on his part, uh, and nuclear deterrence theorists uh, talk about the rationality of irrationality. If people think that you're a little bit crazy, think you're a little bit unhinged, they're going to treat you with kid, kid gloves. And so I think he, his father, uh, and his grandfather to some degree cultivated this on purpose. They knew North Korea was relatively weak, had, had more powerful rivals, and so if they could um, uh, uh, make everybody think that they're a little um, unhinged, a, a little aggressive, that that would um, cause countries to behave cautiously around them. And I think it's essentially worked. Um, the United States has often not responded to North Korean provocations over the years. 
has encouraged South Korea to um, not respond in, in uh, retaliation to North Korean provocations. So going all the way back to the North Koreans um, taking U.S. sailors hostage in the Pueblo crisis in the 1960s, you know, up into some of the recent cases of North Korea sinking a South Korean warship, shelling a South Korean island, uh, and essentially not having any uh, any response. So I, I think he wants us to think he's crazy, but he may be um, crazy like a fox. That was Matthew Kronig, Deputy Director of the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security at the Atlantic Council and a professor at Georgetown University. You know, Jeff, it's disturbing that we have so little visibility into a nuclear power that poses or will soon pose a direct threat to the United States. It has always been thus. North Korea is the hardest of the hard targets. Look up hard targets in the intelligence dictionary and you come up with North Korea at the top of the list. But so are China and Russia. Nothing is more important in intelligence work than to get advance warning of an attack from any of them. A reminder, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and get a lot of great original content. Also subscribe to our podcast, but know that next week, because of the holiday, we will be on hiatus. We will be back in just a moment to talk about failures in the intelligence community. As you heard at the top of the show, a couple of weeks ago, Senator Angus King of the great state of Maine excoriated our top intelligence officials for wrongly predicting that Afghanistan would hold out for months against the Taliban and that Russia would take Kiev in three days. And both were profoundly wrong. I'm not asking for clairvoyance, King told the Washington Post after a contentious hearing, but I know that we're spending a lot of money on intelligence. Indeed, we are. $86 billion a year. Now, recently, Carl Ford, a former senior intelligence official, came on this show and told us that U.S. intelligence analysis is broken, quote-unquote. And he said it had been broken for decades. A number of former intelligence analysts took issue with Ford's stark pronouncement, so today we're giving one of them a voice here to offer a rebuttal. Gail Helt spent nearly a dozen years at the CIA, where she worked on issues related to East Asian security politics and governance. Today, she's Director of Security Intelligence Studies at King University in Bristol, Tennessee. Gail Helt, welcome to Spy Talk. What do you make of Senator King's very critical take on the performance of U.S. intelligence about the end of the war in Afghanistan and the beginning of Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Well, I mean, I understand the frustration that senators and, and, and other folks have with the intelligence community in these scenarios, because there is an expectation that if we have all of this technological expertise and all of this intellectual expertise, we should be able to get, I think, what most of the public assume are very basic things right, right. Yeah. The reality, <laughs> exactly. And, the, and I understand that frustration. The reality is it is very difficult to predict things like, an enemy's will to fight, or how is leadership, untested military leadership, truly going to perform? Or you know what kind, even, even to some degree, um, how well are you know will this new weapons technology perform in these situations? It's very hard to get that right under even the best set of circumstances. And so, while I understand his criticism, I think it's a little bit misplaced. Okay, we're going to drill down to that in a minute. But first, I first tell our listeners, 
What's it, what was it? You, you spent a dozen years at CIA and, and, and analysis. What? Tell us what your day was like. Give us a typical day for you. So a typical day for me, I would come into the office pretty early in the morning. Uh, I usually got there around six. I, I spent a, a whole lot of time getting there way earlier than that. But wow. um, you, you get there as early as you need to get to to get through your your morning, you know, intelligence dump in your inbox and, and in your uh, your databases. So well, tell us about that inbox. What's coming in? In terms of what's coming in, you've got all source collections. So you've got um, the open source stuff that used to be called FIBIS, the, the foreign broadcasting. Oh, now I can't remember. <laughs> information service. Yeah, information the, service. Those, were, Thank you. those are the Thank folks you. who monitored uh, foreign radio broadcasts. That, that, that is correct. Yes, they did. And now it's the open source center. And so you, you, you know, you'll, you'll have all of the open source stuff in there in your inbox to go through things that are relevant to the account that you follow. But most importantly, you have the clandestinely acquired stuff, um, the human reporting that comes in, things that uh, spies gather and pass to case officers and, and, the, and they pass back to headquarters um, after hopefully a great deal of vetting. You'll, you'll go through that stuff. You'll try to figure out what you know, what syncs with what we already know, what's different, um, what do you make of what's different? Is, is it different enough that we need to warn the president or, or other uh, policymakers? Um, you'll, you'll have State Department cables, you'll have uh, uh, signals intercepts from NSA, um, basically everything that's possible to gather and collect and, and uh, funnel to analysts, you'll, you'll have to sift through all of that. So you read, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of documents every day. Wow. Okay. So let's, let's stick with the morning for, for starters. So you've done that for a couple of hours. Then what do you gather? Like, let's say you were working, you, you were an East Asia specialist for some time. So let's say you're targeting your, your, your account is China. Uh, and you get all these reports and all for all these various sources. And then what you gather with other China analysts and talk it over over a mid morning coffee or, or what? We would have a meeting. Ours happened to usually be at nine o'clock. Uh, so you'd want to come together. Uh, you, you collect your thoughts. You might chat with your with your colleagues before that meeting. Uh, hey, what did you make of this? What do you think? Is, is this different? Is this credible? Um, and then you go into your morning meeting with your team chief. Uh, and you all come together and uh, have a meeting of the minds, so to speak. And your team chief kind of helps decide uh, what's relevant enough to take into his manager's meeting, um, where decisions are made about whether or not you're going to go into the books, which usually means, are you going to write for the, the PDB, the presidential daily brief? Um, and so he'll come back, he or she will come back from that uh, meeting and tell you, yeah, you're going to be writing this thing today. Or sometimes they just say, yeah, you, the idea that you pitched was also, you know, they, they like that idea and they want you to move forward with that. That might or may or may not be a, a PDB. That could be um, a, a wire, a world in review article for, for cabinet level secretaries uh, generally. Um, it could be something else. Uh, okay, let me yeah. let me interrupt you there and say, give an example. Let's say you find in uh, your inbox, uh, or you put together some clues to suggest that uh, a significant regiment of the People's Liberation Army in China has moved from from northeast China down to Fujian across from Taiwan. So that would be something of great interest to you, right? Yeah. Yes, now, <laughs> now, 
as you know, we had former senior, a former senior intelligence analyst and former head of State Department's INR, Carl Ford, on a couple of weeks ago. And he said the U.S. intelligence is broken. And one of the reasons he called it broken is he said that we stopped going deep in the weeds on our adversaries' military dispositions, right down to the quality of, of, of uh, tank treads, but more importantly, um, the makeup of its personnel. For example, he said, we're not, we, we, what caught us off guard with regard to Russia intelligence on the invasion of Ukraine was that we, we hadn't studied the uh, capability of the sergeants in the, uh, in the Russian army, uh, whether they were capable of organizing uh, and, and motivating their troops. What, what do you say to that? Uh, I, and I and I heard that uh, that discussion with with Mr. Ford. Um, I I was very surprised and taken aback by this. Uh, that's not what I I didn't recognize the intelligence community that he described in that in that discussion. Uh, you, there are analysts who dive deep into those the, the minutia of of uh, performance and uh, readiness and order of battle. There there's folks across the intelligence community and every agency that has military analysts. They're doing that kind of work. Um, so I was I I was a little bit taken aback. Um, hmm. I so you're saying he very taken aback. So you're saying that he's totally wrong about saying U.S. intelligence is totally broken. I, yes, he is totally wrong with that assertion. It, U.S. intelligence is not totally broken. It's not. I don't even think it's a little bit broken. <laughs> you have. You do have analysts doing that kind of work. What he may have. I, I don't. I don't want to presume to say what he may have been trying to get at. Um, the issue that I would would go back to is the same issue that I cited with Senator King um, with, with his in regard to his comments, which is where we fall short is how human beings themselves are going to act. You can't really, it is really, really difficult to be able to predict that in advance. I mean, the Afghan um, army fled because its political leadership fled which we were not expecting. I mean, I think that decision was made in a matter of hours on in Kabul. And when the military saw that, they, of course, were going to get the heck out of there. I mean, what kind of signal does that send? But, I don't think that's something that it is always possible to predict in advance. But look, we were there for 20 years. Wouldn't you think that U.S. intelligence would be able to estimate whether the Afghan army and particular units, particular warlords that we depended on were going to fight or whether they were going to switch allegiances fast? You seem, it would seem to me, maybe I don't get this right, but maybe it seems to me that after 20 years, we ought to know which units are going to fight or not. And likewise, let me switch to more uh, current topic is Ukraine. I mean, how is it that we so underestimated the Ukrainians' ability or capability or willingness to fight and overestimated the Russians. This seems to go to Carl Ford's point that if we were really studying the personnel in Russian units, if we had, if there was a specialist in, say, the sergeants in the Russian army, and, you know, an army rolls on the backs of the sergeants, um, we, would, we would have known better about what Russia was capable of doing in uh, Ukraine. I think there may still be a little bit of a, and, and I don't think this 
justifies the claim of, you know, totally broken. But I think there may still be a belief that, you know, the, the Soviet Union was our adversary and it, its mere existence justified billions and billions and billions of dollars in defense spending by the U.S. over 40 or 50 years. We still assume possibly wrongly, right? You can talk about the conventional wisdom bias. Maybe we have fallen into that trap. I think, I think there may be an assumption that still exists that that formidable adversary that existed then still exists today, that people are still motivated. Maybe it was ideology that kept, that, that made the Soviet Union, see, or Soviet uh, military seems so formidable. Maybe it was the belief that, well, they're fighting for this, this way of life, this system. And so are we. And we knew how motivated we would, we would be. I think we are still looking at the, the Russians, uh, their military through that Cold War lens. Does that mean the intelligence community is, is entirely broken? No, of course not. It means that we need to step away from that particular from that particular bias. I think we also didn't have an understanding of what it is like to be fighting for your homeland. When have we last seen that um, really in a, in a military conflict that we cared about? Uh, it probably hasn't happened in my lifetime, maybe, I mean, maybe well, Vietnam, right? Well, we <laughs> I mean, I, I don't remember that. So, so how, do you, how do you appropriately gauge the Ukrainians' reaction? They're, the Ukrainian, they're fighting for their homeland. They're fighting well, for, and we've been involved with the Ukrainians for years, ever since the Russians invaded Donbass back in what 2014. We've been tracking them very closely and working with the Ukrainians. Uh, we assessed very accurately that the Afghan mujahideen that we were backing in the 1980s would fight to the last man to throw the Red Army out of Afghanistan. So when we work closely with people, we seem to know if they can fight or not. Now, the political decision to keep fighting is an entirely different thing. We knew early on in Vietnam, the South Vietnamese army was not going to fight to the last man. That thing was entirely corrupt. Yet policymakers decide to stay in Vietnam anyway. But let me ask you this. One of the constant criticisms that I've heard throughout the years and that I heard from Carl Ford on our show uh, recently uh, is that uh, uh, CIA people in particular can't specialize in one particular thing for a whole career, say the Chinese economy or Chinese uh, tank forces or or whatever. You get switched around too much. You spend a couple of years doing Russia, a couple of years doing China, a couple of years doing uh, uh, Islamic State and so on. Is, is there something to that? There is there is something to that. At least there was when I was was still in the agency. And keep in mind, I left in 2014. So yes, that that does reflect the agency that I, that I know to at least to a degree. There is a people are encouraged to be uh, more generalists as opposed to specialists. That said, that doesn't mean that every person is funneled into that particular dynamic. I mean, I know plenty of people and worked with plenty of people who worked on a specific thing for the bulk of their career, or they would work on something for five or six years, China, let's say, they would be strongly encouraged to go, you know, have a broadening experience. <laughs> and they would go do, you know, maybe it was during the time we were, we were surging in Afghanistan. So they would go work on Afghanistan for a year or two, and then come back to, to China where they had you know, built up previous expertise. So is that, is that jumping around maybe a little bit? It is jumping around. It seems to you define jumping around. Well, it is, it is, but it isn't. I mean, you're still getting five or five or six years in on it, on an account before you go off and do something else 
and then you're returning to it. Yes, two years is a, is a gap. I mean, that you're going to have to get yourself um, caught, caught back up uh, to speed on. But again, you know, a lot of those skills are interchangeable. You learn how to how to funnel through information uh, and figure out the, the lay of the, of the land pretty quickly after you've been around. Uh, you know, it was said of the major conflict in my era, the Vietnam War, that we weren't in Vietnam for 15 years. We were in Vietnam a year, 15 times. Yeah. It seemed to me what you were just saying, that you might work on Afghanistan for a year, then you switch to something else. So again, you and in my own experience, I felt like I began to understand Vietnam by the time I left after a year. So it seems to me this is, is a problem that, that the CIA should really go back to. I, I don't understand the logic of jumping people around from section to section, subject to subject, except that it might suit management's whims. But it seems to me that if somebody wants to spend uh, their entire career on Brazil, let's say, that's that would be an asset to U.S. intelligence. And, and again, there are plenty of people who are able to do that. There, there are plenty of people who do spend virtually their entire career working on, on the same thing. They might go do a rotation as an editor and come back in six months, but they're going to do their, their entire analytic career, uh, you know, on Brazil or on Angola, if somebody were inclined. Um, you know, maybe they'll do something uh, relevant to the region, um, you know, Latin America more broadly, and then go back. But still, it's going to be, if they do do something, it's very closely aligned with their primary account and their primary ex, uh, area of expertise. That was I mean, certainly the Russians practice under the KGB. And maybe you could tell me whether they continue that after the KGB, but a guy would work on, he would be an Iberian specialist for forever. You know, he might go there and work as a spy. I uh, might go to work there, uh, come back on a later tour as a chief of station in Madrid. Uh, then he'd go back and uh, work on Latin America against Spanish culture uh, and then come back and work on Spain again. Uh, but essentially spent a whole career in that area and got to know that particular subject very well. Whereas our guys come in for a couple of years and then, you know, they're doing Latin America for well, the, the, the war on terror was led by guys who were Latin American specialists. I mean, right. What do they know about the Middle East? Well, the reality is when a crisis pops up, you will have to surge bodies. People, I mean, hopefully those are bodies with expertise on something, right? They're, they're at least good analysts, right? It, it, at some level, when there's a crisis and you have to start staffing overnight shifts and you're sending people out to the field and you're sending you know, teams to go brief downtown constantly, you've got to plus up from somewhere. You're not going to pull in experts from the, you know, the general population in any swift ma uh, manner. I mean, those people have to be, would have to be cleared even if you could find them. So to some degree that's necessary, but there's still a whole flock of people, of analysts who are sitting there getting significant time on their account and not doing that, not, not jumping around. So I was talking to an old friend yesterday, a veteran of the senior executive service, CIA, <laughs> station chief in many places, ran many task forces and so on. And he said the war on terror really sucked people out of other places that they had worked for a long time, China, Russia, and so on, and threw them into uh, the Middle East. Was that your experience? Yeah, I remember folks, I think, I think CTC, the counterterrorism center, plussed up, uh, like they got a whole, a whole slew of people from I want to say the Office of Transnational Issues, who were not pleased to be detailed to go work on something so unfamiliar to them. <laughs> something that they, uh, let's rephrase that. <laughs> Displeased to go work on something they knew nothing about. That's yes, exactly. 
Exactly. I mean, they bring their analytic skills, which again, to some degree are transferable, but they don't bring enough, they don't bring a knowledge base. And then again, when um, the national counterterrorism stacked up, there was another uh, forced surge of bodies to go to go work and staff those positions and people again, uh, were definitely not happy. I mean, I remember I was there. I remember that. And I remember just praying to your God, don't let me get stuck in that search because I did not. I mean, I, I did work China. I did not want to work anything but China. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. That definitely happened. Was there still a huge number of analysts back in my office who got to stay where they were and keep doing the work they were doing? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. When you were working China, that was in the 1990s, Gail? Uh, the, the 2000s. Early 2000s. Yeah. And how long did you work on China? Uh, seven years, I think. Okay. Did, you're, you're, did you speak Chinese? Had you studied Chinese? I had studied Chinese. I do not speak Chinese fluently. Uh, and I speak it even less, less, less than less fluently than I did before. And now that I've uh, left and... Uh, don't really use it anymore. But yeah, I, I mean, I did have some familiarity with the language. Is, is that something that, uh, well, how did you end up in the China section of analysis then? So I was applying, uh, I handed someone at a job fair my resume when I was in, my P, in a PhD program at the University of Arizona. And uh, long story short, within two weeks, I had a job offer. Um, because a lot of my research, I was studying political science, but a lot of the research, the, the papers I did were China focused because I had always been fascinated with the history and the culture. Um, so I could hand them writing samples that reflected that and um, had a job offer really quick and got uh, my, my background uh, uh, investigation went through fairly quickly. So I was actually in a seat in probably six months. Okay, so after your seven years working on China, did you feel like you really had a mastery of your issue? Did you? What was your specialty within China? Was it ec economics or or leadership or military? The, the cross-strait relationship with Taiwan. Okay, so did you feel like you had a real, really good grip on that issue by the time by the end of your seven years on that, and and that? your analysis was being uh, paid attention to or uh, that was getting respect? Yes, I, I did. I mean, I, you know, I've written PDB presidential daily brief articles that um, like within 24 hours, I could see a policy reaction to the thing that I had written. So, so yeah, I mean, you've definitely, uh, at least I did definitely had the pleasure of seeing your, your work, your efforts um, uh, pay off. Absolutely. So circling way back around, how do we get it so wrong on Russia's invasion of Kiev? I, I, I don't know <laughs> I, I, for sure. I mean, honestly, I don't know that anybody will know for sure until uh, a few more studies come out and people, uh, people start talking about this. But I suspect that won't really happen until after the war is over. Um, but at the same time, I, I still go back to, you know, we know what the Russians had. We know the kind of uh, weaponry they had. Uh, we made an assumption, I think, that if civilians started dying in any significant numbers in Ukraine, they would surrender. And I think that that assumption was was wrong. That was faulty. So um, you wouldn't, of course, argue that we couldn't learn more from this, that we really need to maybe 
adjust our approach to these issues. We got another big one looming with China. We better get right China's intentions when it comes when, with regard to Taiwan in particular. Absolutely. Right? We can't we can't make the same mistake again. We cannot. No, no, absolutely. We cannot make that same mistake again. We have to figure out how it is we can go about assessing things like will to fight and how many people in the I mean, we saw with Afghanistan, we saw, well, I don't know if we saw them, but apparently Afghan pilots took airplanes and fled to Uzbekistan and other places. We can't if that's going to happen on Taiwan, we need to know about that in advance. Right. We need to know that someone's going to you know, take an Air Force plane from Taiwan and fly it to Japan because they're afraid because they don't want to fight. We need to figure out uh, the commitment of these folks. I think anyone who we have any kind of obligation to support um, in any way, we need to get a better understanding of their will to actually do what we're hoping that they will do. Okay, one more last question. Do you think any heads rolled over these uh, faulty analyses on Afghanistan and Russia and Ukraine? I doubt it. Uh, I, I I cannot speak to that with any kind of authority or any well, kind that of would, You were saying, I doubt it. That that <laughs> says a lot right there, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, I, I doubt it. Um, that said, I we did get a lot of things right on, on Ukraine, right? We were sharing intel about, you know, where Russians- Yeah, but Russians we got the big thing wrong. We did get the big thing wrong. But in the long run, how much of an impact would you say that actually had? Well- that's I, for for that's for another day. <laughs> fair anyway, enough, fair enough. And I don't and I don't mean to minimize that, honestly, but but I don't think it's the huge failure and debacle that other people seem to think that that it is. Like, the intelligence community is in fairly decent shape, better than fairly decent shape. It is not totally collapsing. OK, that's one for the home team then. All right. Thanks, Gail Held, for coming on the show and uh, letting me uh, pound you with these questions. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. That's Gail Helt, former CIA analyst. We're going to be following the subject closely in the coming weeks and months because really there's nothing more important than U.S. intelligence being able to predict what's coming down the pike. And I love getting the point-counterpoint going, different opinions. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Remember to subscribe to our podcast and also to Spy Talk on Substack. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. We'll be taking a break next week, but please do join us again. I'm Gene Meserve. I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for sticking with us again this week. See you next time. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.